there. Welcome back. This is Epic Realms Action Adventure Collection, and you are about to hear the next episode of Bullet Catcher. I hope you're just as excited as I am to see what Emma and the Bullet Catcher do next. Hello. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm/partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Every 5 minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number 1 New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'll recall, in our last episode, Emma decided that there was absolutely no way she was ever going back to washing dishes, and I completely understand because washing dishes sucks. In this episode, no dishes, just Emma learning from the bullet catcher. And it's going to be like one of those very cool training montages with far more bullet wounds and fewer motivational speeches. Are you ready? Of course you are. I'm Faith McQuinn and this is Bullet Catcher, episode 4. 1. At the end of every month, the bullet catcher administers another test. And when it's over, I lie under my canvas roof and think about running away. And each morning when I finally find sleep, I'm resolved to stay. Sometimes it's because I'm too tired to run. Other times because I refuse to let the bullet catcher break me. And every now and then because I sense some improvement, a near dodge, a glimpse of the bullet. I've been shot so many times I might actually be getting over my fear of it. When the bullet catcher puts his hand on my shoulder and says, "It's time." I don't feel anything, only gray acceptance. I follow him out to the clearing where we count out our steps and I take the bullet like bitter medicine. My body has become tiger striped with scars. I'm the tiger girl, barred and banded and unafraid of the hunter and his guns. The mountain has circled around to winter. Our breath rises like muzzle smoke in the air. I count the months in the series of scars on my body. 11 scars, 11 months. Somewhere along the way, I turned 16. One year more than Nico ever saw. This morning, the lake is thick with ice. I break through and ease myself into the water. 
While I bathe, I watch the wind blowing snow across the peaks. A white sandstorm. It distracts from the sub-zero water, the feeling of my skin knitting back together from my latest test. One of my only clear memories of my father is when he would kiss me in the middle of my forehead and call me his winter child. Nico was his summer child. I never much knew what he meant by that. But now I think I understand. Nico was charming and outspoken. I was insular and quiet. Nico was warm. I was cool. Though being close to Nico warmed me by degrees. Maybe that's why I've always felt so out of place in the Southland, under the beating sun and swirling heat-stroked winds. Maybe I was meant for winter, the cold and rain. I trudge back to camp, blowing breath into my cupped hands. But the bullet catcher hasn't started the fire. There's no coffee brewing. Snow coats the ground, looking like confectioner's sugar. If I were still a child, I would delight in the soft, fluffy flakes alighting on the ground. I would forget everything and start cartwheeling in the snow. But not anymore. Most mornings I think of nothing but training and the morning exercises. The small tree branches the bullet catcher made me carry as I shadowed him through the woods in the early days have turned to logs that I easily sling over my shoulders. Despite my slow progress, my muscles have become steel ropes beneath my tiger-striped skin. For the first time I can remember, the bullet catcher has broken the routine. In fact, he's nowhere to be seen. I look in his tent, but he's not there. I run into the woods, checking the traps. Maybe he fell into one of the pitfalls by mistake. But somehow I can't imagine that. And sure enough, the traps are empty. I'm heading back to camp when I hear a voice. No, not a voice. Two voices, speaking in hushed tones. I follow the sounds, making sure not to make any noise myself. And then I see them. The bullet catcher, and a woman I've never seen before. She wears a brown coat, leather pants, and boots. Gray hair spills from beneath her wide-brimmed hat. Her dark face is tattooed with scars, and one of her eyes is covered with a patch. She holds the reins of her horse in one hand and a cigarette in the other. He's there, I know it, the woman says. She doesn't look at him when she speaks. She focuses on the cigarette in her hand like she can't bear the sight of him. How do you know? Asks the bullet catcher. I seen him. I seen him clear as I see you here in front of me, down at Los Casadores on the far side of the mountain. Was he looking for me? You. No one cares a lick about you. I'm only here because of the debt I owe. He was there talking some load of crap about water with the mayor. Then they start speaking a little more hushed, and I try to edge closer to hear what they're saying. And as I do, I break a twig underfoot. It cracks like an alarm going off. The woman draws her shooter, quick as lightning, and aims it right at me. Who goes there? She growls. The bullet catcher puts his hand on hers and gently lowers the gun. 
Come out, cub, he says. His voice is gentle but rigid, and I do what he says. What's this little thing? The woman says, disgust in her voice. She's nothing. She ain't nothing or she'd not be here. She studies me a moment and then says, She's not... You're not... Training her. She's helping around camp. That's all. I'm an old man. A fool of an old man. She spits the words and finally holsters her gun. Anyway... I said what I came to say. This squares us. Then she fixes me with her good eye and says, You know what's best for you. You'd get the hell out of here. Ride away and forget this old man. The rest of the world did ages ago. She drops her cigarette and smashes it out with her boot. She swings onto her horse, gives it a kick, and she's gone. We listen to the sound of hooves receding into the morning. And then I say, who was that? Name's Cass, an old friend. Didn't seem much like one. Suppose not. He walks past me in the direction of camp. I grab him by the arm as he passes. When you said I was nothing- A lie, cub. And next time some fool like me says you're nothing, you make sure he don't get away with it. Back in camp, the bully catcher doesn't bother lighting the fire. He heads to his tent and I follow. He opens his pack on his bed and starts filling it with supplies. Where are we going? We ain't going nowhere, he says. I'm going to Los Casadores. I'll be gone two weeks. If I'm not back by then, I want you to take the rest of the supplies and get yourself far away from here. Wait, why? Tell me what's going on. If I'm not back by then, it means he killed me. And, most likely, he's coming for you next. Who? He takes a deep breath and fixes me with a stare. His eyes are shining. Bullet, he says. His name's Bullet. The man who killed your brother. Without thinking, I grab the front of his shirt. If that's so, then I'm coming with you. A calm comes over him. He takes my hands in his and gently pushes them away. You're not ready, cub. And I won't be able to protect you. I don't care. It's worth dying to kill this man. He stares deep into my eyes, looking for something. And maybe he finds it, because then he opens his trunk, pulls out the big silver gun that he uses to test me, loads a bullet, and points to the open tent flap in the clearing beyond. I stand slowly and make the long walk to the far end of the clearing. When I turn, he's standing on the far end, the gun in his hand. I don't bother with first position. Screw it. I refuse to be afraid. My hatred for the man who killed my brother makes me numb and relaxes my muscles. Ready? He calls across the clearing. Do it, I shout. He raises the gun and fires. For a split second, I think I see the bullet, 
but it's less than a blur. Without thinking, I swat at it, like trying to swat gnats out of the air. Then everything goes white, and all I feel is the air slamming from my lungs as I hit the ground. The world spins into focus. I'm on my back. Above me, the tops of the trees are green teeth, the blue sky a gaping mouth. The sounds of the forest and my beating heart echo in my ears. The bullet catcher's footsteps crunch over the pine needles, closing in on me. He kneels down beside me, blocking out the sun. His shadow is a cooling balm. I sit up, surprised to be breathing. He takes my hand in his and opens it. There, in a small pool of dark blood, is the bullet. I... I did it, I stammer. He's still holding my hand in his. He studies the wound, the blood, the bullet, like a fortune teller might the lines on a palm, reading the future. But what he sees, he doesn't say. We leave before sunrise. The mountain is nearly black. Beyond, the ridge glows ice blue with the moon behind it. To get over the mountain, we have to ascend a narrow pass that takes most of the first day. Upon summiting and looking down on the desert basin below, I realize that the mountain is only an interruption in the desert, a scar, not a border. The desert goes on forever. The bullet catcher gazes across the desert in the direction of Los Casadores, at a point in the distance, not even a dot on the horizon, and takes a deep, quiet breath. I look down at my hand and trace the circle of the wound through the dressing. The bullet catcher tells me not to be prideful. He sees how I beam at the thought of what I did. He asks how I did it, as if he doesn't know. And then I think on it, and can't answer. And my pride drains, and my chest tightens like a knot. Now that I've done it, this magical act, how can I possibly do it again? If Nico couldn't, how can I? And then it hits me again that he's dead. And I'm on my way to meet his killer. The bullet catcher produces my little gun and hands it over without looking at me. The weight tells me it's loaded. He holds out his other hand, and it's full of loose bullets. I thought we only used guns to train, I say, stuffing my pockets with bullets. Where we're going, there are consequences. You must be able to protect yourself. He looks at me sidelong and says, Of course. It is your choice to use the gun. I am only giving you the option. We descend down the far side of the mountain, following a creek bed as it winds through a shallow, rocky canyon. It's the long way down, but not so steep. The creek is dry, but the bed is dark and cold, and our boots make deep impressions in the clay. Near the foot of the mountain, the clay lightens and becomes a series of dry cracks. The boulders and trees and brush dwindle and are replaced by sand, stretching for miles before us. I hardly look up from the ground in front of me. 
My eyes are fixed on the bully catcher's last step. I try to walk in the imprints his boots leave in the desert sand, but his stride is too long and my legs too short. The cold mountains are behind us. Before us lies the familiar desert, blazing hot and empty. This episode of Epic is brought to you by Wild Grain. I want you to take a moment and imagine the smell of fresh baked sourdough bread filling your house. Or maybe it's croissants, if that's more to your liking. Now, what if I told you that you could get this delicious experience without covering yourself in flour and without leaving your house? Well, you can if you order from Wild Grain. What's Wild Grain? Well, it is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box. You get sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and pastries that go from your freezer to your oven and ready to serve in 25 minutes or less. I just got my first box and it had three different sourdough loaves, biscuits, croissants, and two different kinds of pasta. I made the orange cranberry biscuits right away and I cannot tell you how wonderful my house smelled and they tasted even better. Scallops and Wild Grains Fresh Fettuccine is on the menu for this week and I plan to pair it with the olive oil ciabatta loaf. (sighs) Doesn't that sound so good? If you're a carb lover like me and you want good carbs free of preservatives and artificial colors and flavors, then you'll want to get a subscription right away. And now you can fully customize your Wild Grain box so you can choose any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com epic to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com epic. That's wildgrain.com slash E-P-I-C. Or you can use promo code EPIC at checkout. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Two. The town appears as a speck, framed in the half-circle of the setting sun. We've been walking for five days. But I'm stronger than I used to be. And the trip seems easy compared to that first journey into the desert when I followed the bullet catcher out of sand. When the town comes into view, the bullet catcher stops so suddenly I bump into him. We bed down here for the night, he says. We'll head into town tomorrow. My stomach gnaws at itself. We finished our last coffee and salted meat that morning. 
There wasn't much, just enough. And now with the promise of food just hours away, my mouth fills with saliva. Shaking away my hunger pangs, I let down my pack and start setting up my bedroll. If I can't eat tonight, I plan on sleeping right away. I take a mouthful of water and stretch out on my back. The sun dips below the horizon. I count the stars as they poke holes in the dark sheet of the sky and think about those childhood nights on the homestead with Nico. My back aches from the long walk and the heavy pack strapped to my shoulders. My eyes don't want to stay open. I curl up, wrapping my arms around myself. So are you going to tell me who that woman was and how she knew how to find you? It's been nearly a week since she showed up in the bullet catcher's camp, and the question of who she is has been gnawing at me ever since. An old friend, he says, lighting a cigarette. She seemed to hate you. <laughs> we used to be friendly. A long time ago. What happened? He's silent for a breath, and then he says, I told you. When the going got bad for the bullet catchers, I ran. And what did she do? He stubs out his cigarette in the dirt. She didn't. In the early dawn, we stalk the outskirts of Los Casadores. The bullet catcher reads the wagon and horse tracks leading in and out of the small town. He watches the storefronts and streets through binoculars. When he puts them away, there's a look of frustration on his face. What's the matter? He's not here. Do you think Cass lied? He flinches ever so slightly at the name. Only one way to find out. We walk down Los Casadores' high street as the sun rises. Nobody's out this early, save for the stable hand seeing to a few withered, bent-back horses in a barn with so many missing slats, I can see straight through to the other side. They fill the horses' feed buckets with sand. I've seen it before, in the worst of times, people filling their bellies and children's bellies and their animals with sand, just to keep away the pangs of starvation. Of course, they all die anyway. Why do they call it Los Casadores? I ask the bullet catcher. Why do they call your town sand? It's our number one tourist attraction. He half smiles and says, It means the hunters. It's an old gunslinger town. Years ago, it was bustling. Most have moved or passed on. Nevertheless, best we tread carefully. I know from books and stories told at Dimitri's saloon that early on in the fighting between the gunslingers and bullet catchers, most towns picked sides. Everyone was swept up in the fighting, whether they had loyalties or not. I think Sand was an old gunslinger town, too. The walls at Dimitri's were lined with framed, yellowed photographs of gunslingers whose names no one remembers. Most of those allegiances are forgotten now. With the bullet catchers all but gone, it no longer matters— but my bullet catcher reads from an old map, and he hasn't forgotten. At the end of the high street stands a small law house, more of a shack, truth be told, connected to an equally small brick jailhouse 
that might be able to fit two outlaws if they weren't too particular about their personal space. Inside the law house, the sheriff dozes with his boots up on his desk. The room is cool and smells of bad tobacco. A half-empty bottle of snake bite lies on its side on the desk. The sheriff's snoring is loud, almost obscene, like animals rutting. The bullet catcher takes one look at the lawman and pushes his feet off the desk. The sheriff wakes with a start, and his hand moves automatically for his gun. But the bullet catcher pins the sheriff's arms at his sides like you'd hold the tail of a scorpion to stop it stinging. The sheriff shakes his head, chasing away drunken dreams. He takes in the bullet catcher, and his eyes go big. You know what I am, the bullet catcher says. The sheriff swallows. I do, yes. Then you know who I'm after. Where is he? I don't know what... The bullet catcher unholsters the man's gun and hits him in the jaw with the butt of it. Try again, he says. The sheriff's eyes water. He left here a few days back. Keep going. You're doing fine. Him and Mayor Roebuck, they were getting on real friendly. They made a deal. What kind of deal? Bullet said he'd bring water to the town. Roebuck, he'll know everything. Where is he? The saloon, having breakfast with that gunslinger what stayed behind. Obliged, the bullet catcher says. When we leave, the sheriff stays glued to his seat, too afraid to stand. We march down the dirt street toward the saloon. Do you think it's bullet? I ask. Sudden anger rising to my face. No, he's moved on. Even still, the bullet catcher seems on edge. Inside the saloon, we find the place already full. Some are eating, but most are getting drunk. The pianist plays something slow and clumsy to go along with the rising heat. His bent, sweat-stained hat sits upside down on top of the baby grand. The sawdust sprinkled around the boards does nothing to lessen the smell of vomit and stale liquor. There are a few professional girls here, resting their heads in the crooks of their arms along the railing running around the second floor, where the rooms you can rent by the hour are. Smoke curls from the ends of their long cigarettes. I'd rather be down here, in the danger of all these outlaws and guns, than up there. The drunks whistle at me, but I flash them a look I've learned from the bullet catcher, and they stop whistling turn back to their cards and drinks. I pick out the man who must be Roebuck. He's a round man, the shape of a jawbreaker. He sits, sweating in a three-piece suit with his jacket slung over the back of his chair. He eats hungrily from a plate of meat and potatoes, his knife screeching across the plate as he cuts into his food. He spits as he says something to the person sitting across from him. A tall, thin man dressed in denim, with side whiskers and a curled, waxed mustache. The gunslinger. From where I'm standing, he doesn't seem so tough. I think the bullet catcher is going to go right up to the table and challenge him to a duel, but we just walk on past and take a couple of stools at the bar. Snake bite, the bullet catcher says, 
and puts a coin on the bar. Two, I say, lowering my voice. Soda for the cub, he says, dropping a few more coins. The heat rises to my face. It puts the hellfire in me, this making me feel like a kid. Then I remember where I am, this squalid town many years past its heyday. Living in the mountains all these months with abundant fresh water has spoiled me. Water is a luxury. Water with bubbles? Downright high class. Soda costs many times more than snake bite. I take small sips to draw out the drink and cherish the feeling of the bubbles going up my nose, making me feel, for a few moments, as young as the bullet catcher treats me. I look over my shoulder and lock eyes with the gunslinger. I quickly face forward and take a big gulp out of my drink. He's staring at us, I whisper. I know it. What's the plan? The plan is for you to stay out of the way. If things go wrong, be ready to run. But before I can object, a voice rises behind us. You're in the wrong bar, friend. The bullet catcher half turns and looks over his shoulder. The man stands in the middle of the saloon, by himself. Everyone else has moved to the sides to give him room, to get out of the way in case bullets start flying. He rests his hands on his hips, but not on the butts of his guns. A show of confidence. It says, I'm faster than you, old man. War's been over a long time, the bullet catcher says. I'm only here to get some information. Then I'll be on my way. No need to bring fighting into it. The gunslinger wedges himself between us, paying no attention to me. There's a tattoo on the back of his hand. V.I., encircled inside a black band. Six. The number of bullets in the chamber of a revolver. Six. The mark of the gunslinger's. But it's not the tattoo that grabs my attention. I've seen it before, inked into the skin of countless people back in sand. Gunslingers flash their tattoos like sheriffs flash their badges. It's the gunslinger's hand itself that takes my breath away. His trigger finger's been amputated. In place of his finger, a metal one has been implanted. The surgery is crude and grotesque. The metal digs into his flesh, curling up the skin in bulbous pink and white scars where the bone and tendon have been removed. But the artificial finger seems to work like his others. When he balls his fist, flexing the muscles of his arm, the finger curls with the rest. I've only heard of such things, of people willing to do anything to become a faster gunslinger. I had never heard of anything successful, though. Most of the stories that made their way back to sand were of poor folks driven to obsession, volunteering their hands and arms for experimental procedures. It was said that those who didn't die from the surgery or infection needed their limbs completely amputated. The gunslinger rolls up his sleeve, and one side of the dark curl of his mustache upturns in a smirk. Tattooed on the inside of the man's forearm are a series of black handprints, seven in all. See here, old man, 
Each one of these was a friend of yours. Someone who thought themselves faster than a bullet. Now, what kind of information you after? What could the bully catcher be thinking? I wouldn't fault him if he were to reach for the gunslinger's throat. But he's calm as ever. He studies the line of handprints for a time. And maybe he's reading names or faces in the tattoos. Friends, family, partners in crime. I just want to know where Bullet is, the bullet catcher says, not taking his eyes from the gunslinger's tattoos. The gunslinger laughs, and the rest of the bar laughs nervously with him. Is that all? That's all. The gunslinger snickers. I reckon I could tell you, if you best me in a duel. The bullet catcher slugs his shot of snakebite, stands, and says, Then I'm your huckleberry. Everyone funnels out of the saloon, trailing the two duelists. I'm caught up in the throng of surging, bloodthirsty locals. I try to get to the bullet catcher, but there are too many people between us. I hear his voice in my head saying, Do what I told you. Stay out of this, cub. The crowd lines the street, like the spectators of a macabre parade, and the two duelists begin the long walk to 50 paces. I do what he says. I stay out of it. Anchor, the gunslinger calls to the anonymous faces lining the street. Ready your needle. I'm going to need another tattoo today. The bullet catcher says nothing. His body is relaxed, his left foot just ahead of his right, Legs slightly parted, fingers spread, arms at his side. A stiff wind blows sand down the street in puffs, like machine exhaust. The gunslinger whips his revolver from its holster. I've only seen such quickness in one other person, my teacher. His hand is an arc of burnished gunmetal, a blur that releases six bullets as quickly as pumping machine pistons. He shoots and moves, flicks open the chamber and loads six new bullets in a single move. He hits the dirt and rolls to his right, the force of his movements flicking close the chamber, readying his gun for another round of fire. I'm transfixed by the gunslinger. By now, the moves of the bullet catcher feel common to me. I haven't mastered them by any stretch, but I've practiced them enough times for them to lose their mystery. By comparison, the gunslinger seems an awesome sight. He breathes fire. His volleys are relentless. Most everyone in the Southland, young and old, call themselves gunslingers simply for owning a gun. They get the tattoos and make up stories. This is a real gunslinger. I've never seen a duel last longer than two or three exchanges, but this fight stretches the minutes. The bullets ricochet off the bullet catcher's whirling hands into the dirt. A few bend back in the direction of the gunslinger, but they hit the ground at his feet or fly into the backdrop of the desert. I take this moment to study the way he redirects the gunslinger's bullets. I narrow my eyes and try to identify the positions of his hands and feet through the whirling blur. At first, I can hardly see him, but the longer I watch, the more I understand. All this time... I've thought of what the bullet catcher does as strength, a force of will that's so strong it overpowers the bullet. But when I watch him, 
He doesn't swing or swat at the bullets. He meets the bullet with his hands and guides them in a new direction. It's not about muscle or strength at all. It's something else. That something else settles in my mind like a shape in fog. It darkens and coalesces, gains weight and substance. And just as quickly, before I can make out what it is, it's gone. I want to be patient, but the frustration of not knowing is a physical pain. A pain I've been nursing for nearly a year under the bullet catcher's tutelage. The gunslinger smiles, enjoying the duel. It could be that it's been years since he's had to work this hard, but in the light of the high sun, he doesn't sweat. The bullet catcher whirls and a bullet goes through the brim of his hat, flipping it off his head. His wispy hair is stuck with sweat to his forehead. The sweat beads down his face and off the triangle of his nose. The gunslinger laughs and fires round after round. The sound of the guns is constant, mesmerizing, interrupted now and again by a ricochet glancing off something metal, the dull sounds of wood splintering apart when hit by stray fire. An onlooker grabs his chest and slumps to the ground, struck by an errant bullet, and the crowd swallows him up. The bullet catcher pulls a bullet from the air, cups it in his hands, and turns it around. It tears through the gunslinger's leg. The sound of rending flesh sends electricity through the crowd. The gunslinger cries out and falls to the dirt. The bronze earth gulps at the blood pouring from the wound. Just like that, it's over. The bullet catcher, chest heaving but calm, approaches the gunslinger with his long, slow gait. The gunslinger fires the last three shots left in the chamber, but he does it just to finish the round. He's beaten, and he knows it. His smile is implacable. I run up to the bullet catcher's side and make the slow walk with him. In seeing the hideousness of the gunslinger's wound, I suddenly understand the care with which the bullet catcher has tested me. The slug has torn through the gunslinger's femur. The leg lies in the dirt at an unnatural angle. The white, living bone is cracked and exposed. His skin isn't punctured, it's torn. His body gives up his blood like it's happy to be rid of it. His chest rises in urgent breaths, but he just keeps on smiling. Well fought, bullet catcher, he says, and spits in the sand. The bullet catcher picks up the man's gun, plucks a bullet from the shooter's gun belt, and loads it into the chamber. There is a gleam in the bullet catcher's eye, not unlike that of his counterpart, something that says, I've missed this. The blood spills from the wound, slower now. The gunslinger's eyes have turned glassy, animal-like. Now, the bullet catcher says, squatting by the fallen man, I'll be wanting to know where to find Bullet. Who even told you he was here? Was it that old bit? The bullet catcher digs the muzzle of the gun into the man's wound. The gunslinger lets out a cry that slowly degenerates into morbid laughter. <laughs> it was her then, 
he says. I should have killed the old crow. I thought she might be one of you. Couldn't be sure, though. Where is he? Gunslinger's face is pale, mask-like. His head falls back and the dirt sticks to his pomaded hair. Tiredly, he says, The bruise. He's at the bruise. He squints up at the bullet catcher and smiles. See? I'm a man of my word. Then he looks at me and seems to see me for the first time. Something like recognition flashes behind his eyes. He points a bloody finger at me. He opens his mouth to speak, but before he can get out a word, the bullet catcher points the gun at the dying man's chest and squeezes the trigger. You ever wonder what kind of adventure this would be if there wasn't a villain? A pretty boring one, I suspect. But boring is not what we're going to get here, and this story has barely begun. So come back next time for episode five, as Emma and the bullet catcher have to decide whether to pursue Bullet or follow a different path instead. Until then. You are listening to Epic Bullet Catcher. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Lydia Shama, and executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton, performed by Inez Del Castillo, audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith, additional editing by Corey Barton, original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch, cover art by Christine Barcelona. Epic is produced by Mary Asadolahi and Haley Wagreich. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Faith McQuinn. Audio editing and original theme by Sam Bagala. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Epic by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>